Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's move to the coronavirus. And there are a couple of ships uh, I want to talk about. First of all, uh, the Princess Virus. I mean, they're changing the name of these ships. Used to be the Princess Diamond, but come on, we really know what's happening. And on the Princess, on the Diamond, the outbreak was first detected. An 80-year-old passenger tested positive on February 1, a week after leaving Hong Kong, disembarking in Hong Kong. Okay, three days later, um, the remaining 3,700 passengers and crew uh, they were docked at uh, Yokohama, Japan. At that point, they were asked to stay on the ship under quarantine uh, orders. Since then, the number of people aboard that ship has uh, who have uh, tested positive is now 454. Now, those who tested positive have been allowed to leave the ship for treatment. The rest uh, had to remain until February 19th, which is tomorrow with the exception of American citizens, and we know that U.S. citizens have an option now. Saturday, the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo announced that a chartered flight would arrive to evacuate citizens and uh, their families. And of the 328 people who were on that airplane, 14 had tested positive, uh, but were deemed to fly anyway. They weren't showing any symptoms. Okay, so on that cruise ship, of uh, which uh, 400 people have tested positive. Uh, 58 of them were Americans. And then you had the other ship, the Hall in America, the Westerdam, uh, barred from docking anywhere. They were stopped uh, in virtually every port they uh, were trying to get into, but were allowed in Cambodia. And uh, we have another confirmed American So as of uh, yesterday, 73,000 cases, 1,800 deaths, mainly mainly in uh, mainland China. That is obviously the epicenter of all this. So the cruise ship quarantine makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because you're going to limit the number of people who have tested positive. And here is what is happening. The Diamond Princess uh, in Japan has now become a mass public health experiment. It's a giant incubator is what it is. And that's both good and bad. I mean, it is nothing like what's going on outside in the world. I mean, can you imagine being locked up in a place where uh, you have been in contact with uh, several thousand people and Virtually everybody has had uh, some kind of contact. It is impossible not be in contact with almost everybody else on the ship. Unless you're a hermit, you decide you're going to go into your room, which incidentally, now they have to do. The quarantine, incidentally, on the Diamond is supposed to end tomorrow. Unless there are any other unforeseen developments. And uh, so, you know, there's some issues here. 
There's an epidemi, uh, epidemi, uh, oh God, epidemi, yeah, one of those guys, the professor, I actually had it yesterday, and uh, he said uh, that, you know, quarantine is actually generating active transmission in a big way. Another epidemiologist, epidemiologist, there you go, at Harvard said it's even unethical uh, to do that because... Uh, it's a virtual guarantee that even with locking people up, you know what? There you go. There everybody has uh, is, again, put into an environment where the chances of uh, contracting uh, this disease has exploded. Incidentally, among those who've tested positive, 10 crew members. And here's the, the point that, and this is New York Times is saying, what are they doing? Because the infected crew members have been eating in the mess hall with their coworkers. It's the passengers who have uh, been quarantined. They still need to be fed. They still need people to work the ship. And uh, a Japanese health official last Wednesday who was checking up on the passengers came down positive for the virus. And one of the doctors now who was... uh, an early care provider in China has also come down with the virus. Now, the positive aspect of quarantining these ships is understanding uh, the incubation period, the transmission dynamics, as they're describing it, the clinical spectrum of illnesses, so they don't have to go out and hunt people down. And whenever there is, for example, a case of food poisoning or salmonella uh, or E. coli that's in the food chain, the CDC has to go and hunt down uh, where it all started. And it can take weeks and weeks. And the investigation is crazy. Well, here, it's all right there. So there are two sides uh, to that coin. And so I wonder, I think the cruise business is going to be nailed uh, with this after the Novavirus And after uh, the coronavirus, I think people are going to be very reluctant. Now, keep in mind, we're talking two ships out of thousands of ships that are out there. But since I love to cruise and cruising can get really expensive, uh, I'm all for this. Uh, I have no problem with this whatsoever. Whatever takes those prices down is fine with me. Oh. Okay, Boy Scouts uh, filing for bankruptcy uh, amid the new sex abuse lawsuits. And uh, a part of this story that you don't know, you haven't heard, and you're going to go, really? Yesterday, uh, the Boy Scouts filed for bankruptcy protection uh, because of these mammoth potential uh, victim compensation or victim victim, protection. plans that they have to come up with uh, to pay him back uh, because the accusations have just gone completely crazy. I'll tell you why uh, all of a sudden this has opened up because uh, normally uh, the statute of limitations would stop all of it. These are incidents in which men who were abused as boys in the 70s and 80s and 90s are bringing to uh, the forefront. And the reason these lawsuits have been filed as well as those about the Catholic of the Catholic Church is because you have states that have just opened up the statutes. California, for example, opened up the statute of limitations one year and uh, a 
an abused, uh, uh, well, man at this point, who was abused as a child 30 years ago, where the statute normally would uh, uh, would apply. Statute of limitations uh, precludes them from filing lawsuits. Now, for one year, anybody who's been abused or alleged to have been abused can file for, it doesn't matter how far, uh, how long ago it was. So, uh, the Boy Scouts of America, they're getting nailed. Thousands of victims uh, coming forward and saying, I was abused as a child by scoutmasters, scout leaders. And I, I want to make a point both about the church and about uh, the Boy Scouts of America. Not that they are a perverted organization or uh, allowed this to happen, although they did, by the way. And then when they discovered it, covered it up, both the church and the Boy Scouts of America. This is where I nail them. And this is where they should be punished for the cover-up. As far as what happened during the course of this, it's these organizations, particularly the church and uh, Boy Scouts of America, it's a great place for a predator to camp out. It is safe for him. It is easy because the kids are so vulnerable. It's not so easy when, for example, you're a teacher. Right? I mean, they have them, but there are not too many of them because where does a teacher molest a child? Not at school. So uh, I guess tutoring that child. But when you look at the Boy Scouts of America and uh, priests, look at how many opportunities they have to molest young boys. And it's virtually always young boys. So here we go. Boy Scouts being nailed. And now here's the part that you probably don't know about. The bankruptcy petition that was filed yesterday said the liabilities of the Boy Scouts of America are $500 million to a billion dollars. I mean, that is huge. But you know what their assets are? Because you have to compare liabilities to assets. The Boy Scouts of America assets are between $1 and $10 billion dollars. How the hell do the Boy Scouts of America, how do their assets come up to $10 billion or several billion dollars? Well, they have huge property holdings, campgrounds, hiking trails. There's 104 years of the Boy Scouts being around. And you have hugely successful men who were Eagle Scouts, Scouts were so proud of being Scouts. Now, keep in mind, the number of, uh, of uh, youngsters who were molested, of course, is a tiny, tiny fraction. The vast majority of uh, former Boy Scouts uh, had a great experience in Boy Scouts. I am a former Boy Scout. I had a horrible experience in Boy Scouts, and it had nothing to do with being molested. It was, um, well, I got kicked out of a troop, and I talked back, and uh, it's it's a very long story. Gee, it's a surprise. Yeah, I talked, I literally did, but that's, uh, and for real, but I, uh, anyways, I'll share that with you at some point. So how did they get so much money? Well, you have these hugely successful men who leave them or buy the Boy Scouts campgrounds, for example. And that's 104 years of this. So the Boy Scouts of America is rich. And according to the bankruptcy petition, 
they have more than enough money to pay off the victims. Because uh, they're looking at liabilities at $500 million to a billion dollars, uh, and uh, that is uh, in aggregate, and all of this uh, money or property they have. And the reason that they file for bankruptcy is just to stop everything and put it all in the bankruptcy court, and the bankruptcy judge then works it out uh, and everybody negotiates it out. I mean, the Boy Scouts have been a pillar of American life for generations. I don't know if you've uh, ever met. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Uh, someone who was an Eagle Scout. They make a huge deal about it. It is no small deal to be an Eagle Scout. It's 106, uh, I think it was when I was a scout, 106 merit badges. I went to a ceremony, like an Eagle Scout graduation. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's just a huge deal. And though, and by the way, the people who make Eagle Scouts, the men obviously are super focused. Oh, yeah. And it is, uh, you know what, there's a reason why they become leaders and successes. You can see that as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy who becomes a, an Eagle Scout. This kid had like gotten the gone around, gotten the donations for a new playground and then sat and put the playground together himself, like with the Plex or whatever they call it, so that it was a whole thing playground that he could do. It was incredible the focus he had to have had. Yeah. I mean, that's typical. Oh, incidentally, uh the new cases that have been filed, most of them go back to the nineteen sixties, seventies, and eighties, not the nineties. And the Boy Scouts are saying since 2018, there are five known abuse cases. So this is, it goes back much like the priests who have molested young boys. It goes back generations. And now uh, both the Boy Scouts of America as well as the church is, uh, has uh, in, in uh, instituted prevention policies Mandatory criminal background checks, abuse prevention training. I mean, all of it. They've come in, but they're going to pay for what happened. They are going to pay, and they should. Because allowing it, for one thing, and I'm not going to hit him so much for allowing it, because uh, it is, uh, the mandatory policing now is something new in light of, but covering it up. Man covering it up. That is complicity all over the place. All right. Uh, now, Joel Grover uh, is uh, with us, and he comes uh, uh, aboard regularly. He's NBC4's uh, reporter. Uh, he goes out and does, well, he's a reporter at large and uh, does a lot of stories 
for uh, for us and for NBC, of course. And this one has to do with the homeless. That's one of his specialties. Now, I want to point out something. If you've seen a homeless encampment, and I have one very near my house that cropped up this last year, and it's under a bridge. And from one end to the other on the sidewalk, there are plenty of tents, certainly plenty of shopping carts filled with what most of us would uh, consider trash, but uh, it's obviously something very different for the homeless. But I'll tell you what's missing. You know what you don't see? You don't see portable toilets. And with that, Joel Grover has been investigating this. And uh, Joel, uh, thank you. And I know it's a huge issue. And it can't be one of the most pleasant topics you have covered over the years. I never thought I'd be on your show talking about pee and poop. Why not? I, I just never thought. But it's actually, this is a very serious, urgent public health threat to both the homeless and the housed residents of the L.A. area. What you just said 36,000 homeless people on the streets of L.A. and no place for most of them to go to the bathroom except on the sidewalk in the streets. Some of them tell me they go in containers in their tents and then toss it out into the street or into the trash. Huge public health hazard. And one thing I have not seen, and I have seen tons of encampments out there, we all have, I don't see portable toilets. You would think there would be a move in the city to provide those. You would think. Let me, let me just give you a few numbers. I'll try to make this simple. The United Nations, the World Health Organization, sets a standard for the number of toilets there should be per people in any populated area. The World Health Organization says there should be one toilet for every 20 people. Los Angeles has 16 mobile porta-potties for 36,000 people. So as you said, most encampments, the city has not put a toilet out there. It's kind of a catch-22. I interviewed Mayor Garcetti about this a few days ago, and I said, why do, if you're going to let homeless people camp out on the sidewalk, why aren't you giving them porta-potties? And he raised his voice. He said, we just don't have the money. We don't have the money. It's that simple. And, you know, there's some tough choices. He also said, if we were to put porta-potties out at all these encampments, there's a, the risk that they become permanent encampments. I think that's a very real catch-22 for the city. But the bottom line is we are giving all these homeless people no place to go to the bathroom except on our streets where people then can track it on their shoes, into their homes, into their businesses. And this is how outbreaks and epidemics of certain diseases start. Now, uh, I'm assuming that there has not been a major epidemic. Uh, I know we have uh, we had an issue with City Hall and we, I think typhus and a few other uh, uh, other uh, disease-ridden areas where uh, there was a small smaller outbreak. Uh, do you think that if there was a major outbreak that would change uh, the story completely? Well, Bill, I hate to correct you, but there already has been one outbreak of hepatitis A that was tied to a lack of toilets for the homeless. That outbreak was in 2017. It wasn't that long ago. And I found a City of L.A. Health Commission report that said the hepatitis A outbreak, a leading cause of it, was the lack of toilets for the homeless. So there's already been. But I think if there was a major epidemic and it could be tied to human waste on the streets, maybe there'd be a louder call for doing something, putting more porta-potties out. It's expensive. 
But again, do we want L.A. going down the toilet, so to speak? Yeah, and and how many people are we talking about that when that epidemic broke out? Are we talking about a few hundred people, a few dozen people? I don't have the numbers of that epidemic in front of me. But what I did, I, I have found report after report by the L.A. County Health Department, the L.A. City Health Commission, that says the lack of toilets for the homeless in this city is, an, here are the words, an immediate public health threat. All right. Just so you know, again, not to throw numbers at you, but L.A. picks up tons, did you hear me, tons of human waste off the streets near homeless encampments every week. See, that I didn't know, and most of us uh, didn't. So when we talk about the cost of putting toilets uh, and if we do the numbers, uh, what, 40,000 uh, people in Southern Cal- in Los Angeles alone uh, divide by 20. And you look at the uh, the number of toilets that we're talking about. It also involves servicing the toilets. And um, so let me go back to your original point. And uh, when you said that the mayor is concerned about the, uh, the the number of people that would be there, these encampments would be permanent. Of those uh, 20 or uh, 16 toilet facilities, has that happened? You know, they've put them out at encampments that I would say are already permanent or semi-permanent. You know, they put them out at encampments that have been there for years. Um, again, I, I just think if you don't want human waste pee and poop on our sidewalks where we walk, you got to put a porta potty out there. About a year ago, I was doing a story in Hollywood uh, that involved the homeless because I report on NBC4's ongoing Streets of Shame series looking at our homelessness crisis in this town. I was doing a story in Hollywood, and I noticed at a, on a part of the Hollywood Walk of Fame where thousands of people, tourists, locals walk by every week, the street reeked of urine and i was back on the street day after day working on a story and an lapd commander who i know said don't ever wear those shoes that you were wearing on the hollywood walk of fame into your car or your home or you could be tracking diseases in there and i said really i guess i'd never thought of that he said yes certain things like hepatitis can live in urine for weeks so i learned to keep it extra pair of shoes in my car that I use when I'm walking, doing stories around homeless encampments. I take them off. I put them in the back of my car before I even sit in the driver's seat. People have to understand that when there's human waste on our sidewalks or our streets, if it's somewhat fresh, it gets on the bottom of your shoes. Then you take your shoes off with your hands. Your hands can touch your mouth, your nose, your eyes. That's how you can get it infected. I mean, I hate to link this story to coronavirus, but we're now seeing how viruses and bacteria, how easily they can be passed from one person to another, from the environment. We have to be careful with the shoes we're we're walking on the streets of L.A. with. Uh, Now, when you talk to uh, Mayor Garcetti and he said... uh there, the issue is money, uh, how much it's going to cost uh, in order to put these portable toilets on along the encampments enough to uh, service everybody who is uh, living homeless on the streets. It, did any amount of money come up? Did we get any figures? Well, there's a, a, a City of L.A. report that's about a year old that I found. Here are the numbers. To put a, more, uh, a mobile, they call mobile pit stop, so that's a mobile bathroom with two toilets, $300,000 a year to put one of those out at an encampment. If we were to put them out at 
most of the major encampments in L.A. were looking at about 57 to $60 million a year. The mayor said, I could use that money and build homes or, you know, uh, shelters for the homeless. He said, it's a tough choice. We have to decide between toilets and building homes for well, the future. You know, the, the thing is, a lack of toilets has created a public health crisis. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, there isn't much of a choice there. One is, as you say, a public health crisis. The other one is more long-term. Uh, when you take uh, these uh, portable toilets, uh, what does that mean? Are they on semis? They drive around? Are they hauled by uh, trucks? Well, good, good point. Here's the thing. A truck picks them up and drops them off every day. They have to take them in at night, which, of course, leaves the homeless, if you're going to put them out at an encampment, and take them away at 7 in the, night, in the evening and not bring them back to 7 in the morning, that's 12 hours a day that they have to go to the bathroom. I don't know about you, Bill, but I need to go to the bathroom usually between 7 at night and 7 in the morning. So if, you've got, if you're picking up the, the mobile toilet from yeah. a homeless encampment, where are they going to go 12 hours a day? They're right. going to go on the streets. So, they have no choice. Yeah. So, Joel, uh, exactly how many times do you go at night? Uh, let's start talking <laughs> prostate issues here. <laughs> Can we save that for another segment? <laughs> All right. Oh, yes, uh, we can. Now, I knew uh, you were going there. All right, with uh, See, uh, we've known each other way too long. Yes. Uh, when it comes to uh, construction uh, sites, for example, where you mainly see these portable toilets, uh, and, of course, they are serviced uh, every day or every several days, they come in and they pick one up, and then they replace it immediately with another toilet. Uh, would that double the cost? Are we now talking close to 100 Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. $100 million to do this correctly? Well, it would double the cost because we're just, the, the cost they gave you, $57 million a year to put a mobile toilet at every encampment in L.A., that's only for 12 hours a day. Part of that cost, you should know also, is the city wants, and I understand this, they want an attendant out with those mobile potties. Because in years past, when there was a mobile bathroom near a homeless encampment, if there was no one watching it, sometimes those bathrooms would be used for drug dealing or prostitution. And that was a big concern. So when there's an attendant there, they watch everyone that goes in and out. And, of course, that raises uh, the price uh, astronomically uh, in terms of that. And, incidentally, I'm assuring your reports, and we talk about the fear of uh, those portable toilets being used for prostitution and uh, for drug use. That's not just a fear. That's, isn't that a fact that they're well, used for that? Well, I will tell you, it's debatable. And I, I hear this from a lot of the cops that I know who work the streets. Once upon a time... <laughs> A lot of homeless people in L.A. were literally just living on the streets. Now almost most of them have a tent. Yes. So the cops tell me they don't need to use a porta potty if they're going to involve, be involved in drug dealing or drug use. They just go inside their tent, and the world can't see what's going on in there. Got it. So I don't think that these porta potties being used for illegal purposes is as big a concern as it used to be. All right, Joel, uh, as, uh, and do you, yeah, this is an ongoing report that you have. The report we're talking about is tonight at 11 p.m. on NBC4. And I have to say this, there's some unbelievable 
video we have in this report. It's just stunning. You know, one clip is a homeless guy who had nowhere to go to the bathroom. So he literally walked up to the front door of a business, squatted, and defecated on their doormat. And literally, fortunately, someone in that business saw it on the surveillance camera, and they cleaned it up and took the mat away. But had people stepped in that, think of all the places they would have tracked that human waste. Mm. It's no laughing matter. It's a no, serious it's not. public no, health it, issue. And it is. It's a uh, yeah, fun story. Can I make, isn't Bill, it? do I have one more thing yes, to say? Yes, absolutely. One more? Here's one more unbelievable thing. In the city of L.A., if they catch you not picking up after your dog, you could get a $500 fine. But the city is letting human beings go to the bathroom on the street, not giving them an alternative, and nothing's being done about it. Oh, and there's no law that's uh, being violated? Well, there is a law. You're not allowed to defecate on the street, but that's a law that is not being enforced. According to all my cop sources, they say, we are told you don't cite the homeless for going on the streets. Yeah. Where else are they going to go? But you'll Our- get cited if you let your dog go on the streets and don't yeah. pick it up. Yeah, Joel, thank you. That's uh, tonight, 11 o'clock, uh, NBC Channel 4. 4 uh, Channel 4, investigative reporter Joel Grover. Okay, Joel, as always, thank you much. Thank you for having me on. All right, Bye-bye. take care. All right, uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, has uh, just qualified for uh, the uh, debate uh, coming up uh, tomorrow night. And uh, he'll be on the – no, he won't be on the ballot until Super Tuesday. And Michael Bloomberg is a, a very interesting guy, a unique candidate, which we'll probably never see again. First of all, one of, interestingly enough, three billionaires running for office uh, in 2020. Of course, the incumbent, Donald Trump. Uh, then you have Tom Steyer, billionaire. And then Mike Bloomberg, uh, the billionaire who is the richest billionaire out there. Uh, he could uh, buy Donald Trump, for example, 20 times over. Uh, and... It, it, and Donald Trump is a legitimate billionaire. So uh, what Michael Bloomberg uh, owns, incidentally, uh, you've heard, of course, of Bloomberg News, but that's the tiniest part of what he's about. He created a software that's used by financial institutions all over the world, and he doesn't sell them. He leases the terminals and has hundreds of thousands of terminals out there. And I'd heard when I started looking in the prices, I think it starts at twenty thousand dollars per terminal per year. Yep. That's how you become a billionaire. So uh, he owns Bloomberg News. And you hear of Bloomberg News all over the place, but there are several aspects of Bloomberg News. Uh, There is um, the specialized investigative reporters. They have a much broader political staff. And the problem is, is that uh, Bloomberg News... Uh, the specialized investigative reporters were told not to report on Michael Bloomberg and his financial position. Yeehaw. And that is a little bit controversial to say the least. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was even uh, originally the rest of the uh, of the fourth estate, uh, the rest of the journalists out there were really complaining. And uh, rival candidates attacked the journalist's coverage as bias. So the extent was, not only do you not report on Michael Bloomberg's financial situation, but also the reporting that was done is biased. That's the problem when someone is a candidate and owns a major news outlet at the same time. 
And uh, one reporter at a at literally at a press conference, and John uh, Micklethwaite, who's the editor in chief of Bloomberg News, trying to explain uh, how his political reporters are covering their boss's political campaign and where the conflict is all over the place, uh, and citing uh, Micklethwaite's um, uh, public memo, memo that Bloomberg would refrain from investigating Bloomberg and his Democratic competitors. We're not going to do any investigation. The question is, how do you have an investigative team? How do you have a news outlet that doesn't investigate presidential candidates? Well, Micklewaite said, well, wait a second. It's only that specialized investigative reporting team, not the broader political staff. And... Uh, not only is it a question of candidate Bloomberg, how would a president Bloomberg own a news organization that's already uh, being accused of a conflict of interest? Well, I mean, the easy one, of course, is you put the entire organization in a blind trust and you simply step away from it and you have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Most presidents, most cabinet members do exactly that. The only person in uh, modern uh, history, American history that I can think of is certainly as president who refused to do that was Donald Trump. Now he stepped away and he left his children to be in charge of the Trump empire, as opposed to putting all assets into a blind trust where the president has no idea what's going on. As a matter of fact, the trustee uh, is tasked with never talking to the president about financial interests or how much money is being made or lost and invested within the trust. Uh, within the trust, and uh, so uh, just to give you an idea, how many journalists he has at his financial data company? Twenty-seven hundred journalists are part of the Bloomberg organization. I mean, can you imagine how massive this is? It is one of the premier, well, maybe the very well the largest one out there. And when you go to work uh, for Bloomberg, uh, new employees receive a copy of his autobiography, cleverly entitled Bloomberg by Bloomberg. Hey, why not? And uh, he said in 2018, and this is going to come to bite him in the ass too, uh, in a quote, Blue Bloomberg told an interviewer, I don't want the reporters I'm paying to write a bad story about me. See, that is what the independent reporters from the other news outlets are talking about. And uh, he, that's a little awkward uh, for him. And as a matter of fact, it's bordering on untenable for him. Uh -huh. And on uh, further than that, he declared when he declared his candidacy in November, uh, Micklewaite, who is uh, the chief of uh, Bloomberg News, uh, said uh, that the news outlet will write about virtually all aspects of this presidential contest. Wrong. Wrong. So. We'll see what happens. A very unique situation. I'm going to tell you, 2020 in and of itself is going to be one of the most fascinating, important presidential elections we're going to see in a very, very long time. In addition to just sort of the fun, offbeat sidebar stories, man, there's some 
big stuff going on in terms of where America's going. We've talked about that many times, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that right through the election coming up in November. All right. Uh, I spend uh, a fair amount of time thinking about death. Not personally, incidentally, not as, gee, I'm afraid of my mortality or any of that. Just the topic itself, because we Americans, we don't do death very well. We're not good at death. Other countries in the world do it a lot better. Uh, The Irish, for example, actually, they almost celebrate death. You know, they take the dead person, throw them in the living room. Uh, There's the coffin on some sawhorses, open coffin, and everybody gets drunk. And, uh, you know, cheers and sing. They sing Danny Boy to the dead person. It's kind of neat the way it's done, uh, where death is simply accepted as part of life. We're not good about accepting death as part of life. Matter of fact, if you look at uh, the... Uh, assisted suicide uh, bills around the country. It wasn't easy to get states to go assisted suicide. Uh, We want to uh, live as long as possible, or so many people do. Uh, The medical community, the Hippocratic Oath, uh, which a lot of people think is the hypocritical oath, does not accept death. Doctors are not allowed to help people die. Death is not part of life in American culture. However, you know what people want to do when they die? More and more and more people, they want to die at home. The problem is it's not easy to make it happen. Uh, My dad, when he was dying, uh, and I asked him specifically, uh, do you want to go home to die? He was in the hospital, and he said, yeah. And so we packed him into a one of those private ambulance services and took him home. And he died in his bed because that's what he wanted to do. Now, a lot of other people would have kept him in the hospital and uh, the tubes, et cetera, running out because you want to prolong life because that's sort of uh, the philosophy. Well, uh, it, it is changing when, number one, people are... Uh, wanting to die at home and loved ones realizing that. And then the help that is now appearing more and more to help people die at home. We're talking about hospice. There, even when someone is in the hospital, uh, there are hospice centers. And hospice is not about prolonging life. A hospice is uh, simply helping people die making the person who is dying die more comfortably, comfortably, making the loved ones, family members, more comfortable. And so we are getting there in terms of accepting uh, death as simply part of the way it goes. It's very weird that we don't uh, accept death. I mean, it's just weird. And uh, so you got a couple of things that have to that, that we have to take into consideration uh, that loved ones, uh, family members, when they uh, have uh, someone that's going home to die. Um, what what is uh, the person about to die want? Right. How often do they want to see a nurse or a doctor? Usually not at all. Do they want to be fed? Uh, do they want to just die as quickly as possible? 
my father willed himself to die. He actually did. He had a series of small strokes, and the doctor said he should have kept on going. But he decided to die. I remember for the last several years of his life, he made me promise him that I would never leave him non-ambulatory or even in a wheelchair or a vegetable. And he said, Bill, you have to promise you'll kill me. You'll help me die. And I said, of course I will. It'll be my pleasure to help you die. Thinking at the back of my head, if you think I'm going to jail for you for 20 years, you're out of your mind. But it was really important to him. Really important that he uh, die as quickly as possible. So looking at what does the family want and need? How comfortable is the person going to be? Uh, Where you put the person in the home, for example, one of the major rules is as near a bathroom as possible. Do you outfit uh, the room as a hospital room or do you keep it as comfortable as you possibly can? Hospice is covered by Medicare, by the way. Most insurance companies do cover it. But that's for people who have an expected life expectancy uh, or expected life expectancy of less than six months. So, you know, end of life. I haven't really thought of end of life too much. All I do know is that when I do go, uh, and many people want this, uh, family uh, around them, of course, loved ones. And I have this vision of my daughters uh, being uh, next to me as I'm uh, going down that path, tapping their wristwatches and saying, uh, you know, come on, Dad, you know, speed this puppy up, would you? You know, we've got things to do tonight. I can just see that happening. You've taught them well. I have taught. They're, they are handles <laughs> yes, through they are. and through. All right, human trafficking awareness campaigns. Uh, they're a crock. Those campaigns are a complete myth. All right. Uh, I picked up this article from the Huffington Post, and I thought, wow, this is uh, kind of interesting I want to share with you. Uh, There are posters and airports and bus stations and rest stop around the country, and there is a child, uh, female, usually white, uh, sometimes tied up, and then the headline, someone in your state was just sold or human trafficking. It can happen to anyone. I mean, we're making a huge Uh, issue with human trafficking, as we should. I mean, please don't misunderstand. Human trafficking across the border and uh, people coming in, uh, young girls coming in from out of the country, uh, it's a big issue. There's no question. We're catching human traffickers all the time. But when we're talking about you doing something about human trafficking, you know, well, let me give you uh, the true story here. And it's the same plea to everybody, especially at airports. If you see something, say something. And so over the last 20 years, give or take, uh, this issue, human trafficking, has become one of the biggest social issues in America. Uh, Airlines, hotels, ride-hailing companies train their employees how to spot victims. Uh, Nonprofits enlist all kinds of celebrities. Uh, The social awareness uh, campaigns on social media. Uh, Last month, the president uh, held an anti-trafficking summit. He's created a White House position on human trafficking. And here is uh, the premise. Trafficking is everywhere. 
It's getting worse, and we, Americans, everyday, normal, just ordinary Americans, we have the power to stop it. Here's the problem. Uh, None of the lawmakers or nonprofits or the folks that keep the statistics or the police departments can provide one bit of evidence that raising awareness does anything to stop the issue. And the reality is that sex trafficking uh, bears almost no resemblance to the version that's sensationalized uh, that we have in these public awareness campaigns. Let me tell you, shoppers uh, are not being snatched from parking lots. Victims don't get moved against their will. Uh, Very seldom you have these warning signs. Even though uh, we're told over and over again that human trafficking, quote, can happen to anyone, uh, basically that's not true. The vast majority of victims are the homeless, uh, the undocumented, those in foster care, the marginalized people that you'll simply never see. And it happens uh, to a very small group of high-risk young people, according to the director of... uh, the University of New Hampshire's Crime Against Children Research Center, but you didn't even know there was one of those. And what he said was, I'll tell you what's really going to help uh, the issue of human trafficking. Uh, let's address the vulnerable and what's going through. Family abuse, neglect, foster care placement, and let's address it directly. Now, obviously, that's a much bigger problem than you pointing to the police. You see though that family over there? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Look at the way he's dressed. Uh, And uh, that is really problematic. If you've been around for the last decade uh, at airports, almost every airport in the country, uh, here's a fact. Even though they have signs, uh, we don't know and we don't have any information that there has been a single confirmed case of children being trafficked by strangers via an airplane. Not one. Now, uh, about 100 stereotypical kidnappings of children do take place each year nationwide. Uh, Most, however, are kidnappings uh, here in the States carried out by parents, custody disputes. That's by far the largest. Uh, The same thing is true of childhood sexual abuse. It's not strangers. Uh, Strangers, about 10%. Uh, The rest are family members. The uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, they've been around for a long time. They said that fewer than 1% of the calls uh, to the cyber tip line were reports of, quote, stranger danger abductions. 80% uh, came from foster care and state facilities. That's the problem. Almost no evidence that that the campaigns work or they even talk about reality. Now, let's go back a couple of years. 2018, the National Human Trafficking Hotline received uh, 11,000 reports of human trafficking. Uh, almost all of them based exclusively on anonymous call, not verified in any way whatsoever. None. And what kind of calls were they? Vague, suspicious calls. There's a massage parlor on my street. 
I saw this suspicious family at a mall. They were dressed in a strange way. Look at the way they dealt with their kids. And I'll tell you, uh, and this is the shameful part, a large number of these phone calls were black fathers with white daughters, adopted kids. There's something wrong with that. Uh, Two fathers. Here's one story they talked about. Uh, that was kind of bizarre. Well, not bizarre. Yeah, two dads, they were married, right? Obviously uh, a gay couple uh, that were taking their adopted child uh, to whatever. I think they were taking him to an outdoor facility and the uh, and they were taking a U, an Uber and the Uber driver kept on asking questions uh, about their mother. You know, where's where's the mom here? And they were... They didn't say very much. Uh, they tended to be uh, pretty quiet about it, but kept on peppering them with questions. Where's the mom? What's going on? Two guys with one child. And he ended up calling the police. And the police came out. And they were minorities. And the kid was white. They'd been adopted. And the police came out and questioned them for a fairly lengthy amount of time. Of course, everything was fine because it was all legitimate. But as one of the dads said, uh, it is not easy to be a black queer dad in our society. So most of the warning signs, way too generic to back, uh, help actual vi- victims. All right, nonprofits. How about this one? How about travelers who aren't dressed appropriately for the weather, uh, which happens in every international airport? Children who don't have their travel documents, which, by the way, is very common for teenagers traveling with their families. I remember uh, taking a trip with my daughters. uh, And they don't have travel documents. They're my daughters. Right? Hey, she's 12 years old. What kind of documents is she going to have? Or she's 8 years old. So I just thought I'd share that with you. You know, and so next time you see one of those signs or you hear stories of human trafficking and how prevalent it is and what you can do about it, you know, it's a crock. Okay, this is KFI AM 640. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.